This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now... Economics is on everybody's mind now. Yesterday, Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, talked of apocalyptic scenarios associated with food. In the first instance, he did reference the relationship between food and what's happening in the Ukraine. But everywhere we look, we see numbers for inflation that are frightening and are frightening even the coolest economists. And our guest today is one of the coolest economists. Konstantin Gurdjieff is a Russian economist. Uh, he was at Trinity for a very long time and in Dublin and very popular. He is still associated with Trinity. He's an adjunct professor of finance at Trinity and lectures there. And he's talking to us from uh, Colorado. Thank you very much for joining us, Konstantin. It's always a pleasure uh, uh, an enlightening pleasure to talk to you. Um, I want to ask you first about, uh, last time we spoke in March, I think you talked, you said it would be May before the sanctions that have been leveled against the Russian Federation would begin to bite. Of course, at the same time, where Europe is paying a billion dollars a day uh, for Russian energy. How does this look now in terms of economic consequences for Russia? Um, well, hi, Eamon, and my pleasure to be here uh, with you, as always. Um, you are too kind in your description of my uh, prowesses as an economist. Um, but, you know, given some of those prowesses, um, I must say that sanctions regimes um, and the geopolitical risks and uncertainty that we are witnessing today um, is the environment where it's hazardous for anyone to try to venture any sort of the prognostications or forecasts. Um, as you mentioned, in back in March, we were talking about the end of May, beginning of June uh, timeline when the sanctions are going to start biting. In April, we had the governor of the Central Bank of Russia, Elvira Nabiulina, who is a very competent economist and competent, um, if you want, bureaucrat, a central banker, uh, mentioning that it would take probably into the third quarter of this year for the sanctions to really start biting. And now here we are, uh, mid-May, um, second half of May, and uh, the reality is that on the ground in Russia, sanctions are already biting. They're not biting yet sufficiently enough 
or uh, any sort of the pressure to reverse the current course of war in Ukraine. Um, in other words, they're not yet hitting significantly the macroeconomic side of the Russian economy, the fiscal side of the Russian economy, but they are impacting on the ground. There is an increase in terms of the unemployment. There is also decrease in terms of jobs availability. Um, as as Western companies exited Russia and continue to exit Russia, of course, that reduces employment. It reduces employment for the highly skilled workers. What's another interesting dimension here is that we just got today the figures uh, from the statistics office in Russia, uh, which are based on the mobile connections and mobile uh, phone numbers. Yeah. And apparently 80% of people who uh, left Russia some 3.6 million people left Russia uh, at the start of the war. 80% of them are now back in Russia. And uh, apparently most of these are the IT sector workers who are coming back to Russia uh, primarily because they uh, left Russia for countries where they wouldn't have a job, they wouldn't have a prospect for settling. Most of them went to the likes of Armenia, Georgia, Egypt is the largest country which was a recipient of Russian uh, wave of um, people living uh, in the wake of the announcement of the war. And of course, you know, now that they're back, they're looking for their jobs back. And those jobs are not really available in most cases. Um, and even in cases where they managed to live on a vacation, so they, they didn't vacate their job fully, um, they're still coming back to the employers who are unable to continue extending those contracts simply because they are under sanctions, because there are restrictions on trading with Russian companies. So even the companies that are not sanctioned directly, I feel in it. So yes, you have the impact on the ground. I still would stick to the view that the real pain is going to start happening at the end of this quarter, somewhere yes. around June. Um, but it is, a, as I said before, a moving target. Look at what Europe is doing. Yes, the European Union this week announced that they have found a mechanism to resolve the problem of how to pay for Russian gas um, in rubles uh, for the European companies so as to not breach the European uh, sanctions. Yes. And, um, you know, that is something that we couldn't have seen coming back in April when the sanctions were originally announced. So we assumed that the sanctions would bite. And then there is a bit of the, you know, if you want dance happening around those sanctions, even led by the European Union, in this case, by Brussels directly, um, that effectively mitigate some of the adverse effects of those sanctions. Okay, so it's a moving target. Now, the effect on the world economy, which had to go through two years of COVID before that caused a crisis because governments had to spend and dole out money to businesses and individuals who were suffering. And, and then it's followed by this crisis, the Russia-Ukraine crisis, and the apocalyptic vision of Andrew Bailey expressed yesterday in relation to food and in particular the effect that we will feel from both the Ukraine, which was the breadbasket of the Soviet Union at one point, and Russia indeed, uh, the effect that that will have on food supplies for the world and the supply chain. How bad is that? 
We talked about most of those things before, and it gets progressively worse and worse and worse. I mean, we had the economy going into the COVID pandemic, which was global economy in 2019, which wasn't in the root health. Um, in fact, that has triggered the early intervention by the likes of the European Central Bank, monetary intervention, before the onset of the COVID pandemic back in November, December 2019. Then, as you mentioned, we had, of course, the pandemic, which was an absolutely out of this world type of the experience from economic perspective and from any other perspective, social, political, and so forth. Subsequently, what we had is before the um, beginning of current conflict in Ukraine, um, we had also an early on onset of the, you know, if you want the monetary policies reversal process, uh, which was pre-announced by the ECB, by the uh, by the Fed. This was um, after the end of austerity. No, I'm talking about 2020, okay? okay. Uh, late, sorry, uh, late, late 2021, okay? Um, that's when the Fed started talking and lining up the reduction in terms of their, um, uh, their own purchases of assets, um, reducing, um, drawing down their balance sheet down the road as well as increasing the interest rates. So this kind of uh, talk about monetary moderation uh, following on the monetary stimulus of the 2020-2021 um, had an adverse effect overall on slowing down economic growth. Of course, inflation was already booming at that stage, yes? Um, and then, of course, as you mentioned, we have this disruption, which is compounding all of that, is the disruption caused by the geopolitical conflict in Ukraine. You mentioned Ukraine being a breadbasket of the Soviet Union and in the past of the Russian Empire. It is a major producer of uh, major agricultural commodities. Um, in wheat, it is one of the largest, world largest exporters. Um, it exports about um, just un just over um, 40% of what Russia exports in terms of wheat. It exports more than Russia, for example, in terms of corn. It exports largest uh, amount of sunflower oil um, and so forth. So there's a whole host of different commodities that are being disrupted. In addition to it, what we saw this week, um, and that's an interesting uh, kind of indicator of how complex these markets are. Uh, India, for example, announced that it will not allow exports of uh, wheat um, and grains out of India this year. Now, India is not a very large exporter, uh, but in the past, it did act as a kind of safety valve. Yes. Uh, when the prices would shoot up globally, Indian exporters were able to step in and supply some of the um, you know, some of the commodities in order to moderate those prices globally. Now, not a huge again effect, but it had a very significant effect overall, uh, because what happened there is that it coincides this announcement of this safety valve now not being allowed globally uh, in a market. It coincides with the strengthening of the U.S. dollar. All of the agricultural commodities are priced predominantly globally in the U.S. dollar. So that means as a result of that local inflation is going through the roof. The likes of India is experiencing double, if you want, impact or triple impact of rising prices. Global inflation driven by the disruption of the supply chains and the supply systems. Global inflation driven by the fact that we have the major conflict between Russia and Ukraine um, that is disrupting the supply again of those commodities. And yet another effect of the monetary policies in the United States and the rest of the world and therefore strengthening of the dollar as well. India is not alone in that basket. Uh, Egypt is another country um, experiencing this. Indonesia is another country experiencing this. Pretty much every country outside of what we consider the traditional West, and we 
tend to focus on is experiencing this. Um, and therefore, of course, Bailey's comment you mentioned before yeah. is very important because it recognizes this reality. Interestingly enough, yesterday, Biden administration also came out with a very strong statement that they're going to support global efforts to normalize food prices and so forth, which is a bit kind of, you know, you know, makes you a, a little bit smile and say like, yeah, right. Okay. What are you going to do? Um, Let's not forget that the uh, United States itself is experiencing significant inflation. Uh, not only inflation, there is also shortages of uh, vitally important goods, um, unrelated directly to the monetary policy, but related to the supply chain breakdown globally. Uh, baby formula is currently in the short supply in the United States. F, uh, you know, uh, FDI, Food and Drug Administration, um, in the United States um, has announced yesterday that um, they expect these shortages of baby food formula to continue for a couple of months. Um, so, yes, I mean, this is, uh, if you want, it's not a really perfect storm. It's a combination of several perfect storms yes. in the global economy. Let me ask you about the the view initially taken in the United States, Constantine, when inflation began. Uh, the chairman of the Fed said, described it as transitory. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, uh, that, why? Why was that? What? What did he get wrong? Well, I mean, on one hand, um, there is two things here happening. Yes. When they announced that it is transitory, they expected that the inflation is driven solely by the one factor, and that is supply chain disruption. They also saw supply chain disruption as being effectively uh, temporary. Yes. Um, they missed the point on global trade. The Fed is not that great on global trade. It's a monetary authority. It's a central bank. So they deal with the money supply issues. They deal with the inflation issues and so forth. They don't deal with real world stuff like physical movement of goods and services. And so as a result of that, that's fairly easy for them to get it wrong. Um, what they missed here is the fact that we had effectively since roughly 1998 an uninterrupted virtually period of exceptionally accommodative monetary policies globally and in the United States in particular. Interest rates have structurally collapsed. Uh, supply of money has structurally increased. And as a result of that, we have not just a couple of years of COVID, but years and decades of the past misallocation of monetary resources in the economy. And that's coming home to roost. We have accumulation of assets and asset valuations in the property markets, in the stock markets that are out of connection with any reality, right. in productive reality. So when you look at households, the upper middle class, richer households, wealthy uh, folks who have exposures to those markets, they have significant leverage capacity, which they are absorbing currently. And that leverage capacity comes from the fact that their assets are overvalued, structurally overvalued, over 20-plus year horizon, with a couple of corrections for the dot-com bust and for the likes of the 2008 global financial crisis. All of that fuels the demand way beyond the supply capacity, supply chain capacity that we have currently. What also is compounding that is that geopolitically we're in a new Cold War and actually in a new hot war. And the Cold War with China is very important in this context because it has fractured effectively the pattern of production and investment that flows that we had before. And so as a result of that, this supply chain thing that the Fed thinks is transitory, and by the way, ECB used to think as well until Philip Lane, the chief economist of ECB, actually correctly came out and, say, and stated openly about a couple of weeks ago that this is structurally long-term inflation. 
that we're witnessing yes. now. So, I mean, they, both of those monetary authorities and the, uh, and the Bank of England and Bank of Japan and so forth, all of the monetary authorities simply missed the boat on the fact that we have a compounding effects of changes in global flows of trade and investment that are compounding the decades long monetary experiment of unprecedented monetary expansion that we have seen. Right. Now you talked about not just a perfect storm. You talked about a number of perfect storms. The first question that arises in my mind when I think of the European Union and inflation is Germany. For historical reasons that everyone will understand, the Germans took the hardest line on inflation traditionally, correct? That is correct. And what will they feel or what will they be reminded of when they look at inflation up around, in in the case of the EU, I think it's around 7, uh, 6, 7 percent. In the UK, 9.1 percent, apparently to be announced uh, tomorrow. That's expected, yeah. yeah. The, 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 this is a powerful, the most powerful nation in Europe, I, I, I'm sure. What will they think? What will they fear? Uh, what effect will it have on them? I think that's a very interesting question. Uh, to ask, and it's a question that is impossible to fully answer with any sort of the accuracy because this is a kind of scenarios play out, really. Um, the problem with this view is that you are correct in terms of historical, if you want, aversion to inflation risk that Germany as a society has. And it, of course, is ingrained in the structure of German savings. And do remember that Germany is the most rapidly aging uh, society in Europe. Yes. Much more rapid, even more rapidly aging than Italy. Um, so as a result of that, this is not a trivial question in terms of the savings structure and the pensions structure that Germany has, um, and of course the inflationary expectations going forward. So on that kind of scenario line, uh, you're going to have a significant pressure in Germany, uh, similar to what we witnessed during the sovereign um, debt crisis yes. in the Eurozone of 2008-2014, um, and um, it will be a pressure uh, to increase interest rates, to tighten monetary supply, and to really put the brakes on the European economy, crushing it effectively into the, uh, driving it hard into a recession in order to reduce inflation. On the other hand, there is an opposite scenario to that, which has been developing over the recent years. In the recent years, Germany has allowed the European Central Bank to be effectively fiscally captured. What it means is that the European Central Bank has shifted now by all possible tangible metrics away from inflation targeting and towards targeting the supports through monetary policy, accommodating monetary policy of the weaker, fiscally weaker states of Spain, uh, Italy, and so forth, Greece and the likes. Okay. So which scenario wins? determines how high of the inflation rates the European Central Bank is going to be willing to tolerate. And here, I have to kind of excuse myself, and I, you know, despite usually having very strong views on what should be done, I don't really have one view, simply because, on one hand, we have a rapidly aging generations across Europe that need to be able to provide or be provided with pensions, yes. with savings, with access to basic services, to quality of life, that requires high interest rates environment. But on the other hand, we also have younger generations who require lower interest yes. rates in order and high inflation, therefore, in order for us to invest and trade out of the current predicament of slow productivity growth. 
So in a way, it is an, an you know unpalatable choice that the ECB is facing, a choice that it was forced by itself to face, of course. Uh, but nonetheless, it is highly unpalatable choice of you know which side of the society you're going to sacrifice. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live, from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating. They always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Let me ask you about the prospect, which was raised as late as today. The British government is unilaterally going to legislate, according to a statement by the Foreign Secretary in the House of Commons, legislate to alter the Northern Ireland Protocol. The EU is extremely upset, as indeed is the Irish government. It's introducing chaos, it's breaking international law and an international agreement. And the response from Europe and indeed from Dublin is broaching the idea that if the Brits go ahead with this, it will lead to a trade war between the European Union and the United Kingdom. How much damage could that do and who would suffer the most? Because we are told or we're given to understand here by commentators that in relative terms, Ireland is not so bad at the moment relative to others. Um, well, first of all, where is it all coming from? My understanding is that the opposition to the protocols is um, currently being framed as the anti-inflationary measure. And we talk about the pressures of inflation, yes? Um, and the UK government is viewing protocols as generative of higher cost of goods, uh, primarily, um, being traded within the UK. 
I think it's utter insanity to think about these protocols as such. They're yes. marginally small effects. Um, they are marginally small barriers, and they can be dealt within those protocols with. So to me, this is more about politics. Of oh, it UK, is. Internal it, politics. Yeah, it is. The British are regarded as looking to pick a fight with Europe to distract their own people. Exactly. Yeah. And, and throw in Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, and Northern Ireland under the bus in that game is yeah. not going to produce any winners for no. the UK. Definitely. Um, from Irish, the Republic of Ireland perspective, um, and that's really his perspective that worries me most, uh, since for me, Republic of Ireland is my home, yes. uh, despite me living in the US nowadays. Um, uh, you know, you can't, you can't really, you know, first of all, in the short term, there will be a cost if the protocols are lifted or abandoned by the UK. There will be a cost of disruption because a lot of goods are flowing across the border to Northern Ireland and back. And there will be a knock-on effect of disruption as well um, in terms of the goods from Ireland being shipped into the UK. The UK, of course, is a major market for the, yes. for Ireland as well. Uh, there will be medium-term effects in terms of the capital flows associated with those goods flows as well. Because of the most of our trade with the UK is more granularly falling onto the kind of, if you want, more diverse base, not just multinational corporations, but also the smaller companies in yes. Ireland, um, this is going to be a painful disruption for the Republic of Ireland. In the long run, however, I think that is a good opportunity for Irish exporters to start more aggressively diversifying into the European markets yes. and the markets outside of the UK in general. UK currently has been shown to be a dysfunctional, effectively, marketplace from regulatory perspective. And now they're also showing from international law perspective as well the same level of dysfunctionality. The fact that politics can override longer term considerations of economic and, you know, international law benefits for the UK itself is a scary kind of, if you want, vestige or indicator of the degree of populism that has been transmitted into the UK society. And I think the more Ireland decouples from that, the better it is. I haven't ever had the chance to ask you about Brexit. And Brexit, people say it will be 40 years or 50 years before uh, the British are able to assess whether Brexit was a good thing or a bad thing. But what Brexit certainly did, it propelled Boris Johnson into power and the Tory party with him. They won an 80-seat majority and the slogan for the election was, get Brexit done. That was it. as simple as uh, Brexit done. We are now going to be, quote, global Britain. This... <laughs> This, yeah. <laughs> this kind of nonsense has prevailed and surely everyone appears to see that Britain is politically a basket case. I mean, the, the, the cabinet is full of non-entities. The very fact that Liz Truss is foreign secretary, the very fact... It's frightening. It it's is frightening, frightening yes. and, and people, the, there's uh, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, appears to have his wits about him, but they're breaking him slowly. However, is there a price for us 
um, quite apart from the Northern Protocol, um, is there a price for us and indeed for the rest of Europe? Because Britain's trade with Europe is falling dramatically in both ways, in terms of what's coming in, but also, and more seriously for, for them, in terms of what is going out to Europe. Europe is sourcing stuff elsewhere. Absolutely. It's not a zero-sum game. I mean, um, it's we're talking about economics, and we're talking about the social, cultural um, developments and political developments. None of these are zero-sum game type of interactions. There are no kind of, if you want, black and white. Here's yeah. the winners on one side of the, uh, and here's the losers on the other side. When we started the process of talking about Brexit back in the days, I mean, I was always agnostic about that because I always felt that, hey, listen, it doesn't matter what you call yourself, what alliance you have. You can structure different relations uh, differently. You can uh, create a win-win type of the agreements on a bilateral basis or on multilateral basis. You don't have to be a member of the yes. European Union in order to benefit from the expanded opportunities. And you can't be genuinely global country. So the idea of Britain being global that's to me sounds like a pretty wonderful thing. Um, the idea of Britain being outside, uh, outside or inside the EU is, it's kind of like if you want, it's a tool you choose. Yes. yes. It's the objectives which matter that you are pursuing before the tool you choose. And in this case, unfortunately, now I can say, you know, you know, I do not see a way of trading out of the Brexit, um, where there will be net gains for either Europe or for the UK yes. on that matter. I mean, it is UK's own, you know, own business, how much they're willing to lose on the altar of pursuing this, you know, yes. kind of you know, semi-independent and uh, resurgent Britain. But from the European Union perspective, we're losing a lot. I mean, we're losing not only the existing patterns of trade and existing patterns of investment, but we're actually more crucially losing the role the UK used to play as a laboratory for policy analysis, yes. policy consideration and criticism. Um, we are losing skeptic within the EU, which is hugely yes. important to have. Yes. We're losing Cassandra. We've lost Cassandra, yes, in this case. It also has been, UK has been tremendous laboratory for productivity growth, for yes. private sector investment and development. Um, so this is now being lost as well. And it's not being lost just simply because we have these, if you want, areas of friction in bilateral trade. We're losing it at the cultural level. I mean, the people coming from the rest of the world into the UK today are not the same people who were coming, say, five years ago or ten yes. years ago, in terms of their entrepreneurship, in terms of their human capital and so forth. Yeah, many have um, left. I mean, hundreds of thousands many have, have left. left. Yes. Um, and even when they went back to the European countries, like say, for example, we talk about French chefs and, you know, all the cliches about those things or Polish plumbers. Okay. When they went back, they have effectively, if you want, changed the path to their future human capital investment and accumulation, their skills acquisition path, yes. their intensity of their aptitude, for example, in the workplace will be changed as a result of that change as well. Is it going to be changed for good? I don't know. And that's that uncertainty and that question in itself is really scary on a longer-term trajectory when we think about the European uh, space, not just European Union space, as being increasingly more aged, more reliant on higher skills, more reliant on higher quality human capital. So, I mean, it's, it's actually is quite scary uh, in a way. I want to ask you a final question, uh, Constantine, about 
the perfect storms that we began this conversation talking about. Of course, there was COVID, there was Brexit, and now there is this conflict in Ukraine. Have you ever seen anything like it? Not really. I mean, but I, you know, historically. And do we have the tools, the intellectual capacity and the political forums to address these problems and get out of what looks like a very, very bad situation where you have, as an example, the governor of the Bank of England talking about apocalyptic outcomes. Can we, in your view, survive this and keep what we have? Which in Ireland, as I'm sure you know, health and housing, we have nothing very much. Um, we have a lot to lose beyond any doubts, and that's the good news. Okay, um, the years of peace in Europe um, and years of relative peace in the rest of the world after the World War II has accustomed us to globally to certain expectations that can be only sustained if we do have what you call this intellectual capacity yeah. and political venues to deal with those issues. So that's the good news. The bad news is that we don't have political venues for dealing with those things. So as a result of that, we've seen a current wave of crisis since the global financial crisis resulting in a significant deterioration of the liberal democracy yes. as the guiding principle for political organization yes. in the West, not just outside of the West. We saw populism rising, uh, both left and right-wing populism rising. We've seen hollowing out of the center. And we are seeing the, if you want, kind of almost quasi-occasionally in different spots, um, almost Lenin-esque style revolutionary stations arising where the ruling elites are incapable of ruling. Yes. And the um, democratic, uh, you know, power projecting uh, voters are refusing to be ruled by those elites. So America I mean, being a good example of that. And we are having this uncertainty right now. I mean, compounding, for example, U U.S. position on, for example, Ukraine and Europe and NATO um, is the uh, forthcoming uh, prospect of the midterm elections in yes. this year in November. Um, and then, of course, there's 2024 as well looming on the horizon. So all of that means that our political venues currently are dysfunctional. Is our intellectual capacity to deal with those crises any better? In a way, technocratically, it is. We've learned some things um, that are very useful from the past crisis. We've developed new tools for regulation and kind of, if you want, adjusting and monitoring uh, different risk environments. But what we didn't develop since then is the political and social culture of implementing um, structuring, first of all, the dialogue around what needs to happen and what policies need to be developed, yes. then implementing those policies in the first place. So this disconnection between the political and social dimension and the technocratic dimension of management is very significant. I mean, it's very important and it is very dysfunctional as well for yes. us. Um, you know, despite me focusing quite often on risks and, uh, you know, big crises and the threats that we face, I'm an optimist. Yes, I do think that in the end we will manage to work our way through this. But that optimism gets knocked down quite often by the consideration of, A, as you mentioned before, the roles of the sequences of crisis that we have witnessed since the beginning of this century, but also by the daunting task that we are facing in terms of the climate change. 
And that compounded by the social disruption of the demographics change as well. So, I mean, I don't know the answer is, will we be able to trade out of this? If we are, then we're probably going to emerge stronger, and then we're probably going to emerge more democratic. We will develop the political institutions and venues to help us deal with future challenges, including things like the challenge, current challenge of the climate change. But uh, the likelihood of that is diminishing with every crisis that we are facing. The likelihood of major social disruption um, is rising. I think that the uh, war in Ukraine today is the harbinger of things to come, unfortunately. Yes. And it is reflective in part of the psychosis of the policymaking institutions that we have inherited as a result of the sequence of the past crisis. Okay, Konstantin, as always, uh, very good to talk to you and we're very grateful to you. Konstantin Gurdjieff uh, still has a connection with Ireland uh, through Trinity College, where he's adjunct professor of finance and comes back now and again. But uh, we wish you well. We thank you for joining us from Colorado and we hope your Putin-supporting mother uh, is in good shape uh, and we hope to talk to you soon. Thanks, Eamon. I mean, I think I think it's very interesting in a, in a way how generational divide works um, in the case of this current conflict and in case of the Russian politics. I'm afraid to say that we are going to witness similar type of generational divide in Western politics as well. Yes, and that is yet another issue that we have to address, maybe in the future discussions. Uh, I hope we will, and I look forward to doing it. Uh, thank you very much, Konstantin. Take care of yourself. We'll talk to you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.